1: ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory attention, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has been inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space, one topic at a time. I'm Eric Kane, Director of ESG Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, and I'm your host for today's episode. Today, we're talking about the intersection of ESG and banks and the very hot topic of finance emissions with Val Smith, who is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Citi. Val, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
0: Thanks so much for having me here, Eric.
1: So let's dive right in. I was looking at Citi's latest ESG report and the materiality assessment within, and you identify a range of issues from climate change to environmental justice to financial inclusion to systemic risk and much in between. It's a lot. Uh, Given this scope and breadth, what does ESG look like today within a bank like Citi?
0: Well, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that ESG has become a really multifaceted term. And because of that, let's ground ourselves in what the original meaning is and how that has changed and evolved today. So environmental social governance um, originally, I would say, was focused on how are environmental, social, and governance issues individually integrated within a business? I think that still serves as the foundation for ESG, certainly within, within city, um, What we see now, I believe, is sort of a breaking down of the barriers between mm-hmm. environmental, social, and governance. And I think this is really important because as we think about, for example, our climate commitments, we think about climate change as being an issue that touches on environmental and social issues around the impacts of climate change, around the just transition um, associated with, with the transition to a low-carbon economy. And underneath all of that, climate strategy has to be founded on good governance and good engagement and disclosure. And so really we think at around about ESG in terms of our priority areas, obviously climate change and our net zero commitments, sustainable finance, other really important topics to the bank, such as our diversity, equity, and inclusion commitments. And we increasingly see this as being integrated into our business and really knitted together.
1: Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned, of course, climate change and the transition. And City has, of course, published a detailed net zero transition plan. Um, was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you approach that.
0: So our transition plan is our disclosure of a strategy that's going pretty deep into the company and into our business. And that strategy is, you know, of course, addressing risk and good risk management, but fundamentally it is a strategy about growth and the direction of growth for the company. Mm -hmm. And with our transition plan, I think it's fair to say that disclosure of a transition plan or a net zero transition plan is what we call ours, is never something that's complete. Mm -hmm. It's disclosure and strategy that we build every year. So we published our initial transition plan in our um, 2022 TCFD Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, our climate report. Mm-hmm. We published an updated and expanded transition plan in our most recent TCFD climate report published in March of this year. And it's, it pulls together disclosure on our net zero commitment, our broader climate strategy across a number of different facets. It includes our, you know, governance around climate change and other environmental and social issues. It includes our transparency, our engagement with our investors, with our clients, with other stakeholders. And building on top of that foundation, it includes uh, obviously our commitment. And then the real meat of a transition plan is around the metrics and the implementation plan. And so, Um, At this point so far, our net zero transition plan has included um, metrics and 2030 emissions reduction targets for six sectors, including energy and power and our initial transition plan. And we've since added to that automotive manufacturing, commercial real estate here in North America, steel and thermal coal mining. We continue to build on this. We continue to develop. And I think in this space, since it's so new and so urgent, we continue, as part of our transition plan disclosure, to talk about what we've learned each year that we disclose.
1: That's really interesting. I, I want to follow up on the idea of uh, the plan never being complete, because uh, we actually just did a, a big analysis uh, as part of our BI Carbon work, where we looked at 54 top lenders. We essentially calculated financed emissions for those lenders um, and tried to assess kind of progress towards an IEA temperature-aligned benchmark for 2030. And one of the things that we saw in our analysis is that almost half of the banks in that group don't disclose finance emissions. So it's interesting for you to say that uh, your report is never complete, because I think in our view, it's a lot more complete than others. So I would uh, commend you on that. Um, and, and of course, you mentioned that it's you know something that continues to evolve. Um, So curious to hear how you think it will evolve and, you know, what some of the challenges are when thinking about individual sectors like automotive, for example, and setting targets uh, for financing to those sectors.
0: Sure. So our financed emissions are one important piece of our broader disclosure, and specifically our Scope 3 disclosure. And um, Citi has been publishing disclosure in this space for over 20 years now. We've published our very first citizenship report for the year 2020. We published our first TCFD climate report in 2018. Um, so we are a very early adopter, and we're a big believer in disclosure both for communicating to our investors and other stakeholders what city what activities city is undertaking, but also I believe that going through the process of building out your disclosures helps you to identify your gaps. Mm-hmm. And um, we find industry methodologies, um, particularly around disclosure and how a transition plan could be constructed, to be just helpful guidelines. We actually. Um, signed on as a member of the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials, or PCAF, which provides a methodology for calculating your financed emissions associated with your client portfolios. We signed on to that in 2020, mm-hmm. um, prior to even making our net zero commitment in 2021. What we've learned from that is, um, I mean, that particular process of calculating your financed emissions provides some useful tools for, for example, communicating to the market the quality of the data, the quality of the climate data that you are able to leverage from your clients. There's a data quality score that we publish associated with each sector that we've undertaken these um, calculations for. And so it's been very helpful to be able to communicate emissions associated with our financing, specifically associated with our loan portfolios, how we attribute those from a client to city. But I think that while this disclosure and the calculation and disclosure of finance emissions has been a really helpful tool and exercise for us, we've also realized that what's important is to disclose a whole suite of metrics. So, for example, we're not just disclosing for each sector our finance emissions. We're disclosing uh, the physical intensity metric for that sector, the financial intensity metric for that sector. And increasingly, I think, because of some of the shortcomings in the market related to climate data, how new these methodologies are, it's really important to disclose the full suite of metrics and we've gotten feedback from our investors that they not just appreciate that but appreciate our, you know, in our disclosure we're really clear that we want our readers to, um, to sort of parse through that whole suite of metrics in order to understand our progress which is after all really designed to demonstrate, you know, the progress that City is helping to support in decarbonizing the global economy.
1: Absolutely. Now, that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned, of course, the the quality of the data, giving um, you know your readers, your investors a, a full kind of picture of the data, not just your finance emissions. And in reading through your report, one thing that really struck me that I think kind of highlights the the need for that and the importance of that, is I was looking at the percentage of your portfolio energy companies, that report Scope 3 emissions, which to me would certainly be the most material scope for them, the biggest scope. Um, and it was only 3% of them. So obviously a huge data challenge. Curious how you're ultimately, you know, besides being very transparent about the lack of data, how you're looking to kind of overcome that data challenge.
0: It's interesting Because I think the challenge that we face in the climate space is that there's a huge urgency to act and to be able to be transparent about the actions and the progress, but so much of this space is also so nascent, especially mm-hmm. in the the calculation space around emissions and the disclosure space related to climate strategy. And so we're sort of in this, we're at this moment with where we have to pair urgency with nascency. Mm-hmm. And um, with regard to scope three emissions for city, this is a new area. You know, we've just begun in the last few years disclosing our financed emissions, which are, you know, the most material of our scope three um, emissions. And for many of our clients, including in the energy space, this is also a nascent area. I think for clients, you know, what we're looking for um, in sectors where scope three is material are either the um, disclosure of those emissions, of the scope three emissions, obviously that's, you know, best case scenario disclosure um, that has some sort of level of assurance of it. Mm -hmm. There are also ways to, um, in a fairly straightforward way, calculate the emissions on our client's behalf based on, for example, production numbers. Um, So this is a quickly evolving area. I think one challenge that I'll call out is um, there's a lag in the carbon data provided, you know, in terms of large data sets to the market. Um, We're currently uh, working off of 2021 climate data. That's sort of the most available massive data set to use for our clients. Um, And so, of course, that's just at the time when we started to see a lot of these net zero commitments Mm -hmm. be made by our clients. Um, But I think we're also at a Period of rapid change, and so when you look at the um, rapid, the the dynamic space around regulatory disclosures, expectations, um, you know, of banks as well as our clients to enhance our disclosures, I do believe that we will quickly see an improvement in that climate data in the disclosure.
1: Absolutely, and and for those of us um, like you and I, Val, who have been in the space for so long, I think we can agree that disclosure has improved dramatically over the last five, 10 years.
0: Disclosure has improved dramatically over the last two or three years. Absolutely. And um, I think those of us who have been in this space for a while can see that the rapid change that we are all grappling with and undertaking and supporting through our organizations is really unlike anything that we've seen before.
1: Absolutely. You mentioned a couple other things that I wanted to follow up there. One of which was this idea of, um, you know, using kind of alternative metrics to be able to do your own calculations. It's a big part of our work uh, here at BI because you know I think we probably take a very similar approach, where we have a lot of energy companies that aren't necessarily disclosing scope three emissions, or if they do perhaps not for the most meaningful aspects of scope three, which would be the use of their products. Uh, so we find ourselves in a position where we actually have to do a lot of calculations and take a similar approach to what you described where we're ultimately looking at production of oil and gas and then uh, basically you know, looking at a carbon coefficient to, to get a, a rough estimate of that. Um, so it's, it's interesting to, to hear that those approaches align. Another thing that you mentioned was this idea of timing and the fact that here we are, you know, in in the latter stages of 2023 and we're still looking at 2021 data as the most complete data set. And I think, you know, again for those of us in the space, we all know that ESG data typically lags by a year. So in 2023 a company is putting out their 2022 report, but if you're ultimately dependent on other companies' to publish their information before you can disclose your information to investors and other stakeholders. How do you overcome that timing challenge?
0: The climate data that we're talking about is an important part of our understanding where a client is in their transition journey, but it's just one part. Mm -hmm. Um, Since we published our initial energy and power emissions reduction targets for our loan portfolios and our transition plan, we have been hard at work designing tools to understand where each client is in their transition Mm -hmm. journey and um, to essentially build up an understanding with our clients of their unique transition profile. So our assessment of um, where our clients are in terms of their transition is um, something that we've developed called our Net Zero Review tool. And it incorporates our it, is, it incorporates quantitative metrics and qualitative metrics. It incorporates our understanding of a client's physical and transition climate risk. It incorporates, of course, the um, disclosure that our clients have provided as well as estimated figures on their behalf related to different climate metrics, carbon um, carbon emissions metrics, greenhouse gas emissions metrics. But it also include, includes other types of quantitative information like their CapEx Mm -hmm. in the solution space. Um, And then I would say the qualitative information is really important as well. How is a client um, developing their climate strategy? How is their board and management team engaged? Who's overseeing this? Um, How are they engaging with us in terms of their forward-looking plans? And so with that, suite of qualitative and quantitative information, we've been able to build up an initial understanding of each client's transition plan within those portfolios. We're now expanding this. Mm -hmm. Um, One other thing I'll note, apart from the transition plan assessment, is that there are important signals that we already see for some of our client portfolios. And I would say particularly looking at the demand side, if you look at the energy value chain, when we look at our power sector portfolio, when we look at our automotive portfolio, two really important industries in terms of the demand for um, energy as well as when you look at the power, a super important industry for um decarbonization of our economy and in those portfolios we already see a number of our clients making their own net zero commitments and executing on them and so it really is a full package of commitments and data and governance that we're looking for here
1: absolutely no that that makes great sense Um, so you mentioned a, a few moments ago the industries that you've ultimately focused on for your transition plan. And and of course, we've we've talked about some of them, automotive, um, energy, power generation, as you were just mentioning. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners the other industries that you're ultimately focusing on and why you selected those industries in particular.
0: Our industry selection is informed by a set of um, different carbon-intensive industries that are recommended by the Net Zero Banking Alliance guidelines. And um, I would say we're now in the section of sectors that is sort of the toughest to measure and the hardest to abate, mm-hmm. You know, where the solutions, the technology solutions are still um, in the building phase. So, for example, we are working right now to understand our agriculture sector, which is actually a composite of many different sectors. How do you draw the boundaries around that? How do you, you know, from a practical perspective, understand carbon emissions associated with really different types of that value chain? We also have done um, work for a number of sectors, including Um, The shipping sector and the steel sector with the Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, Mm -hmm. which has a really interesting process that they have led us and others in engaging with our clients in each sector to essentially identify appropriate pathways, identify appropriate data providers, identify um, an alignment score for a bank's portfolio. So, um, for a host of the sectors that we have remaining, such as um, aviation, aluminum, we actually are working with RMI to understand um, the opportunities for those sectors, and then, you know, really important bringing in our clients' perspectives on that to make sure that we get it right.
1: Interesting. That's really interesting. So, I think another question I had on on the topic of financed emissions. and You mentioned, of course, uh, cities' involvement in PCAF earlier. And one of the things that they, of course, recommend in, in their uh, methodology is using EVIC, uh, enterprise value, including cash, when you're calculating finance emissions. In your report, you suggest that this can contribute to fluctuations in finance emissions data. I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit.
0: Sure happy to. And I'll just note that um, for all of these different methodologies and efforts, each institution and certainly city, um, this is very much an independent exercise at the end of the day mm-hmm. where we have to make judgments you know based on what we're seeing in terms of our loan portfolios and what we're seeing in terms of the data. And we're very careful and clear to disclose those judgments that we have to make. Um, One challenge with the PCAF methodology, which is widely understood and acknowledged, um, is that for public companies, part of the equation involves using the enterprise value, including cash. And obviously, when you have a sector like the energy sector, where because of what's going on in the world, you can see pretty significant fluctuations in that enterprise value, you can see you will see some noise. In your numbers. What we've tried to do in our disclosure is publish the finance emissions number for that portfolio for that year. But also, if we're seeing unusual fluctuations, we want to call that out. We want to describe you know, you see fluctuations here. Why might that be? EVIC went up and down a lot that year. Emissions might have gone down that year. Um, exposure could go down. There's lots of different reasons to see PCAF finance emissions numbers move around. We want to be clear what about what we're seeing in the data. But again, to go back to the point around the suite of metrics, what's really important here is that our investors and our stakeholders are looking at the whole suite of metrics that we're disclosing and using that to inform their assessment about city's progress.
1: Absolutely. And in terms of assessing progress, I think another area where there's a lot of kind of varying information is around what good looks like in 2030 and what alignment with the 1.5 degree scenario looks like or whether 1.5 is even possible at this point. So, I noticed in in your uh, report, of course, you rely on IEA data combination of the sustainable development scenario, uh, net zero by 2050 scenario. So was curious if maybe you could walk us through how ultimately you landed on the IEA as the benchmark that you use and whether you ultimately see the space, uh, whether it's banks or other groups kind of consolidating around a single benchmark um, or whether we're going to continue to see a lot of different kind of methodologies with respect to 2030 alignment, for example.
0: For city, we were looking. We analyzed a number of different pathways that have different utilities for different for different stakeholders in our ecosystem. Um, we found that for many sectors, not for all, that the IEA NZE twenty fifty pathway set of pathways provided the most granularity for the different sectors that we were looking at. For some sectors, however, for example, for the steel sector, um, a different pathway might be indicated to get the level of granularity you want. And so first of all, we're looking for the granularity of information in the scenario for the particular sector that we're looking at. Um, And we have to analyze a whole series of different pathways to understand what might be indicated there. Um, we were very clear that because of our net zero by 2050 commitment, we needed to identify a pathway that was also aligned with 1.5 degrees. Um, that was important to us. And once you once you've identified that pathway and target setting, you you know we we opted we we chose to um, select the emissions reduction target indicated by that pathway for 2030. Every, I don't believe that we will see any sort of like coalescence around a series mm-hmm. of pathways because each institution is really pursuing this um, not as some sort of external commitment, but as something that is very much integrated into their businesses sure. and is aligned with their strategy and their particular set of clients as well.
1: Absolutely. That makes sense. And it's it's interesting that you point to the granularity behind the IEA, because I mentioned before the, the BI Carbon work that we do here at, at uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, and we ultimately came to the same conclusion, where we were looking for... Um, a benchmark in order to compare our forecasts not just for banks, but for other industries, utilities, autos, airlines, marine shipping, et cetera. And Val, as you said, the the one that ultimately provided the most granularity was IEA. And that granularity is not just in terms of uh, what future emissions should look like for those specific industries, but even what activity looks like. So the number of ton kilometers that they expect marine shippers to um, essentially, you know, provide in, in the years 2030 and 2050. So a very unique data set. So we, we've talked a lot about financed emissions. I mentioned at the beginning that it's it's a very kind of hot topic, one that we're doing a lot of work on currently, but it's not the only thing that's coming um, on the horizon for, for ESG or for banks in, in particular. So curious, Val, if you could tell us about what some emerging topics that you're starting to focus on might be and kind of what the role that you see city playing in those topics will be.
0: In terms of emerging topics, I think we can look at the topics that are sort of across the plate, still focused on the energy transition. And then we can look at topics that are starting to come into the mainstream of discourse in the climate space related to climate but also distinct. So, when I think about the key topics that we're focused on right now, obviously transition finance mm-hmm. is topic number 1 having understood where our clients are in many different sectors in terms of their transition profile, their transition journey. That's that's just the first step in understanding how can we support our clients in that journey? How can we support them through advisory? How can we support them through finance? I'll give you one example um, in the hydrogen space that in this in the past few months, over the summer, we advised a mainstream energy client on their acquisition of hydrogen assets, and we also advised a hydrogen client on their public offering. So there is a lot of business activity and growth activity in this space, and I believe that a net zero plan and understanding where each client is in their transition is just really the first step to identifying those opportunities. So transition finance is one important piece. I would say in addition to that, we're starting to hear from our investors that they would like to understand how City is approaching not just transition, but just transition. Mm. How are we thinking about how are we supporting our clients as they grapple with really tough questions around workers and communities and local economies that also have to be part of the transition. I think we have to think about the just transition in terms of our communities in the United States around the world and our workers being satisfied that they see their future in the low-carbon transition. So this is a really important thing that we're I think we're just starting to... Um, you know, want to be able to disclose more about. And I think it's as important when you look into emerging markets, city, you know, has a very large emerging markets footprint. It's about just transition, it's about making sure that we also are building up access to energy in order to continue to support development. The other topic that I'll I'll mention is one that's become um, a real dominant theme in our area in the last couple of years and it's around nature and biodiversity. Absolutely. Yep. And I think with the increased focus on nature and biodiversity, on nature and biodiversity risk and disclosure, there's a lot of different elements there. Um, And, you know, talk about climate and greenhouse gas emissions being hard to measure. Biodiversity and nature risk and opportunity is so much harder to measure. So it's it's a little bit intimidating, but I do think that there is – a very important intersection and nexus around biodiversity, nature, and climate. Um, I think that there are natural ecosystem services that and, and climate solutions that are provided by, by nature that are maybe underappreciated and certainly are undermeasured. Mm-hmm. So that's one area to start. And ultimately, my hope is that we start to see a lot more focus on climate solutions from the nature space, so that we're able to, you know, tackle these problems at the same time, and protect nature, protect communities, while also reducing emissions.
1: Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more uh, with what you said about measuring things related to uh, biodiversity and the challenges there. It's something that we're obviously trying to do here in terms of the data that we provide, but also the research that we provide. Um, and it is certainly a challenge. So I guess my hope is maybe in a couple of years, we can sit down again and talk about how things have evolved um, in the biodiversity disclosure space and gotten a lot better. So maybe just one last question for you, Val. I think another big topic that has you know, certainly emerged in, in recent years and I think will be a, a major focus for a lot of entities involved in ESG um, in the coming year is global regulation around disclosure. So just curious to hear your thoughts on on how that will evolve in, in 2024 and beyond.
0: This is a really important area. It's certainly an area that is demanding a lot of time within Citi. Um, we talked at the beginning about the importance of climate data and how we expect that to improve rather rapidly. And I think that fundamental to that um, that improvement, that shift, will be the fact that around the world we see such a drive by regulators to support climate disclosure and um, city submitted a comment letter to the SEC in support of the objectives around um, around greenhouse gas and climate disclosure and climate risk disclosure and what was interesting in that process of putting together the comment letter was that it really demanded that we pull together in a new way with finance, with legal, with a whole set of internal stakeholders that, even before the final rule from the SEC is released or, you know, different rules around the world, around the country coming out, even before those are finalized, we've started working with our teams in finance and other other functions to really understand what does this mean for City. What does it mean to take voluntary disclosures in the climate space and put them through the um, the mandatory disclosure process. And so I would say that that experience is helping to drive change and building new communities within our company that are really focused on this area. That's happening for city, it's happening for our clients and so I think that we'll see this regulatory environment really stimulate a whole different era of climate disclosure.
1: Fascinating. Really really interesting. I want to thank uh, Val Smith for taking the time to join us today. I think it was a great conversation. One thing that you mentioned at the beginning was this idea of uh, pairing urgency with nascency with respect to uh, climate disclosure, in particular around finance emissions. I, I mentioned a few moments ago that maybe we can you know, sit down in a couple of years and think about how uh, biodiversity disclosures have, have evolved, but maybe we can even think about how that term might shift over the next couple years, and and maybe it'll be something like urgency with maturity. Um, and, And hopefully, we will see that. But thank you again, Val, for taking the time to speak with us today.
0: Thank you very much. Great to be with you.
1: So you can find more information on financed emissions by going to the BI Carbon tab on the ESG team dashboard, BI space ESG Go on the Bloomberg terminal. If you have an ESG quandary or burning question you would like to ask BI's expert analysts, send us an email at esgcurrents at bloomberg.net. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next time.